We bless you today, Jesus. There is none like you. What a privilege to be in your presence. Has God been good to anybody here? Has he spoiled anybody here yet? You know, that's what he desires to do. God's desire is that you and I get close enough to him that he spoils us. Delight thyself in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. The literal translation says, let oneself be spoiled by Yahweh. God enjoys spoiling his kids. He enjoys spoiling his kids. You're a child of God today. There is no reason for you not to have the best life that possibly could be lived. No reason. You want to turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 5. I'll begin reading in verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith, into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we glory in tribulation also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely the righteous men would one die, yet for adventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I want to look at a little word in verse 1. And I want to preach to you for a little while about being. Therefore, being justified by faith. We have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord bless you may be seated. Again, let me say what a great honor it is to be home. And uh, I do again want to thank all of you for your prayers for my brother. And I am praying, and I would ask you to pray that God will take his recovery and let it happen in half the time that it normally would happen in. Would you all agree with me on that? So that instead of nine-week recovery and four and a half weeks, he's going to feel a whole lot better, or 12 weeks. What I don't know how long they told him he'd be out of commission, but whatever it is, I'm praying that God will just cut it in half and bring a lot of healing to that body so that uh, he can do what God called him to do. I am not a very good English student. That was not one of my favorite subjects. I probably butcher the language quite often. I don't claim to have command of it. But I noticed this little word here, and it has such an incredible impact on our life if we just pay attention to some of its details. 
therefore refers to the previous passages of Scripture that led up to this point. And I am not going to go back and deal with any of those things. We started there this morning, but this verse says, Therefore, being justified by faith. Being is a state in which things are continuously happening. But that little ending on being tells us what it's really all about. It's a participle, which means the action is not complete. It is continuous and ongoing. Living for God is not a momentary experience where you find this encounter and that's the end of it. It's over. Living for God is a journey that you start when you discover it's a lifestyle and a lifetime experience, it changes the whole picture. It's, it's a journey. It's part of, of the relationship of starting and continuing. I am not justified yet. I am being justified. Now, that's a whole lot different than saying he's justified. I am being justified. How am I being justified? By faith. By me getting close enough to God to start developing that opinion about who He is, what He does, what He can do. You see, you can't tell me that God doesn't heal because I've seen Him do it too many times. You can't tell me I can't have the Holy Ghost because I've already experienced it. You can't tell me that God doesn't deliver because I've seen Him deliver. You can't tell me that God can't uh, take charge of someone's life and help their life become better than it is. I've seen it happen too many times because God is a God of action and God is a God that enjoys being part of our lives and connecting to our lives. Living for God is a journey in which on a daily basis I am becoming justified. And it happens by faith, by my conviction of who He is. And when I have discovered that there's this faith I can live in or this relationship I can live in, the result of that relationship is it produces peace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Peace is the fruit of our relationship with God. I, I do not believe that God's desire is for any of us to live in panic or live in terror, I, I get quite uh, amused when I talk to people. And, you know, a lot of us have some real funny little quirks about us, don't we? It's really not hard for people to become paranoid over little things. There are people who, who have issues with, with spiders and people who have issues with snakes and it's not hard for those kind of things to happen in our lives. We panic. We, that's the absence of peace. I remember as a child, the worst spanking I ever got in my life was because I had caught a little snake and stuck it in my shirt pocket and forgot to take it out. My mother was deathly afraid of those little creatures, and when she started going through my pockets to wash that shirt, and she pulled out 
this dead snake that had died as a result of me leaving it in my pocket for a period of time, uh, she wasn't real happy with me that day. There are all kinds of things we can become paranoid of or terrified of. That's not what God wants our lives, but those things may be part of your life. But there's one thing I hope that you never become terrified of, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I hope that in our relationship with God, we never get to the point where God becomes a terror to us and we're afraid of Him, that, that we're... We're afraid that he's going to do something, he's going to hurt us, or something's going to happen that's going to cause injury to our lives. God's desire is that you and I live in peace. And peace is the product of that relationship of having faith and knowing what he will do. The psalmist said, I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me to dwell in safety. When I realize it's God. I put my life in, and it's I, I, my trust is in Him. It allows me to not be terrified of what's going to happen tomorrow or, or the next day. I, I can trust in Him because it's a journey. I didn't become a full-grown adult the day I was born. It took a process. There, there was a time that that took place for me to go from infancy to adulthood. My relationship with God is, is described as a new birth. So there's a process of being born a child of God and beginning to develop into maturity and learning to be comfortable in our relationship with God. I've told this story before, but I, I remember my first year here in Houston back in 1971 in Bible college, and I wasn't married at the time, and several of us, guys decided we was going to go to another church on a, a Wednesday night to uh, hear a preacher. And we got there and they had a testimony service. And one of the ladies stood up and testified. And her testimony was, I just enjoy relaxing in Jesus. All the way home that night, we talked about what she said. What does it mean to relax in Jesus? I've thought about what she said for 40 years now. And it's that's an incredible thought that there's a relationship God would like for you and I to have where we're comfortable enough to let our walls down and not be afraid of Him, not be terrified. And if there's anything He wants you to understand is He's well aware of the journey you're on and He doesn't expect maturity the day you're born. I want that one to sink in for a moment. He's well aware that he doesn't expect maturity the day you were born. He knows you're born as an infant. And there's a process of our lives changing. Now, having said that, he doesn't tolerate people who have been in the journey a long time acting like infants. Paul addressed that. There comes a point when you've got to put the milk aside and desire the meat of the Word. But it's our nature sometimes to expect people to be further along the journey than they actually are. There's a process. It's, it's being justified. I am not justified today. I am being justified by faith. 
I am being justified by every conviction I develop about God and who God is and what God does and God's ability and how He can affect my life and touch my life. That produces the justification I have in life. It's based upon my faith and my trust in Him. I am being justified by faith. But there are some things he goes on to point out to us that help produce that justification. By whom we also have access. We have the ability to get into His presence. We have access into the grace, the beauty, the loveliness of God wherein we stand. We, we have a door that opens that lets us in. That word access has many meanings. It, it starts by defining a road or a highway that will take you to a city. Once you get to the city, it defines the doors or gates that will be opened that will allow you in. Once inside the city, it, it describes the man who meets you at the gate and asks what your business is and, and finds out who you're trying to find and then takes you on a journey to find whoever you're looking for. Not only does he help you find who you're looking for, when you get there, he introduces you to that person so that they know who you are when you arrive. We have access into his grace. Why? Because we are being justified. And that access gives me the, the, the road to get there, the gate to get in, and then the introduction once I'm there. I, God wants me to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's easy to get to where he's at. No man has ever had a problem finding God. God made sure none of us will ever point our finger at him and say, I didn't know how to find you, God. I, I didn't know where you were at. There's always a way to get there. When you find the way, David was reminded by the woman of Tekoa when his son had fled and, and he's grieved for several years and this lady comes by and she begins to talk to him about his life and what's happening. And as, as she talks to him, she says to David, God devises means that his banished be not estranged from him. God blazes trails so when those that are lost discover their loss, they can always find their way back home. God is so interested in our life. If we get lost and have no clue where we're at, if when we start turning around and looking, instantly we'll find the trail that'll lead us back to where He's at. He devises means that is banished. Be not estranged. God is always trying to make sure that I have the ability to find Him. And to discover who he is. That's his beauty. That's his loveliness. I, I, I can enter a throne room called grace. And when I enter that throne room called grace, it introduces me to his beauty and his loveliness and everything that's about him. And I, I discover who he really is. I, I discover his gentleness and his kindness and his long suffering. I understand that a lot of people's view of God is defined by their dad. And if dad was really harsh and hard, that's your view of God. If dad was absent, you can often view God as being absent. If you never pleased him or measured up to him, you can often view God through those same eyes. I, I My view of God is not tarnished because I had an incredible 
Father that loved all of us unconditionally. He, he was never mean. He never, he, I never heard harsh words from him. I never heard him say, I told you so. If you'd listen to me, this wouldn't have happened. I, I, I knew you'd, he never said those things. He might ask us, you asked Charles about this one. He might ask us the question, son, what lesson in life did you learn today? Sometimes I think I would rather have gotten the spanking to be asked that question because when he asked that question, I had to think about what really dumb thing I did today and what I should have learned by my behavior. So when I see God, I, I'm, I'm never troubled by how He's going to react to me. I'm never troubled by, by His attitude towards me because I had a, a, a father who introduced me to God in a way that I'll never forget. He's a loving, caring father that His greatest desire is for you and I to have the best kind of life we could possibly have. There's none like Him. There's none like Him. Then He goes on to say that not only so, but we glory in tribulation. Let me back at verse 2. Whom we have access by faith into His grace wherein we stand. Rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory, remember what I said that word means? We glory, dogzo, develop an opinion about. We glory in tribulation. Now that's not real comfortable. Glory? Anybody here like tribulation? When I was in Greece, Long time ago, trying to figure out how many years, but my brain won't work that fast. <laughs> Long time ago, we went from Athens over to Corinth. And in the journey going over there, you, you cross a gorge that nature has made, and it almost divides the nation of Greece into two parts. Man has picked up where nature left off, and they actually opened it up. And so there's this narrow channel that runs across the nation from one side to the other. So you can cross from one sea to the other sea without going around the bottom of the country. And it, it was a, a, a channel that was used by boats on a regular basis. It's probably where we crossed it at least 2,000 foot to the water. It's very deep in places. But it's also very narrow. It's real tight. And there were a couple of points that for a ship to get by, it had to be in the exact spot it should be or be scraping the walls on either side. That's the tribulation it's speaking of. It's telepsis. It means a tight, narrow place. It, it, it's a pressing or a, a pressing or a pressure point. It, it's when life gets real tight. Glory. When life gets real tight. That's not easy to do as humans, is it? Now, I don't know about you, but when life gets real tight for me, I want to complain. I don't want to glory. I don't want to take time to think about all the things God has done for me up to that time, all I can see is there's a rock here and there's a rock here, 
and they're pressing in. The word can literally imply a boulder that rolled down off of a hill and landed on top of you. You're, you're squashed under a boulder. Paul says, if you see your brother that he is in distress, uh, if he's carrying, bear his burden. That speaks of this word. If you see him under the rock, help move the rock. Just get the rock off of him. Get the pressure off. That's where we need each other. Tribulations really should help you and I connect. When do people really come together as a nation, a city, or a community? What, what pulls us together? Good times? No, in good times we forget about life and everybody else and, and, and we ignore everything about life. But when pressure comes or stress comes or problems come, then we start connecting back to people and we, we, we start becoming involved in people's lives and we start knowing our neighbor. I, I've lived in my neighborhood 13 years now, 14 years this November and when the hurricane came and we walked out the back door and all of our fences were gone and I walk out in my backyard and, and as I'm walking out, there's a man comes out of the house uh, right at the end of my swimming pool and I, I see him coming out and I've never seen this guy before. Lived there 10 years at that time. And in 10 years, never saw him. I didn't see him at the mailbox. I didn't see him in his backyard. I didn't see him in his front yard. And he walks out, and we walk over and start talking to one another, and I shake his He introduced himself to me. And I said, when did you move in the neighborhood? And his response was, I've lived here 14 years. He's lived there longer than I have. And I didn't have a clue who he was. Because when things are good, we're busy. We're doing a whole lot of things. We don't, we don't connect to people. We don't get involved in people's lives. And, but pressure causes us to get connected. Folks, pressure's good for us. Tribulation worketh patience. If there's no tribulation, there's no need for patience. Because it's the pressure that teaches you how to have elasticity. It teaches you how to bend but not break. It, it, it's the pressures of life that allows you to discover some flexibility about life that you really need. Tribulation worketh patience. It's the pressure and the difficulties of life that give us our hope of eternity because my Bible indicates some very powerful things about patience. It's in your patience that you possess your soul. Your patience is what gives you the ability to own your will, your emotions, and your intellect. That's your suke. That, that's the soul he's speaking of. It's the seat of, of your thought process. It's the seat of your emotions. It's the seat of the way you think. It's all the stored data in the brain. It's all the stored data in the brain active and operating. It's all the history the stored brain has kept that causes you to have issues with other people. That junk that we have stored can cause us problems. It can make us see people in the wrong light. It, it can actually cause us 
uh, to develop opinions about people that are not even true because we really don't know them. But experience makes us believe that that uh, this person's going to be this way when we really don't know that that's what they are. But we just think that they are because experience has kind of made us think those things. But it's pressure and the testing of life that changes your view of other people. What's the old proverb, walk a mile in my shoes? Well, there's some truth to that. I, I, don't, I, I can't connect to people until there's been some struggles in life. It's the disappointments, the heartaches, the heartbreaks of life that give you an empathy for others who are struggling in life. When you're full and you're not hungry, it's really hard to identify with people in the world that may be starving and have nothing to eat. When all is well with thee, Joseph said, remember me. When life is good to you, remember That's difficult for us to do. It's the stress and pressure of life that really makes me a better person. Pressure. There's always pressure. When I was in the steel industry, we had a little acronym. It was called pounds per square inch. We simply named it PSI. How much pressure are you under? Because that defines how you react and it defines what's going to happen in your life. Tribulation helps me to develop patience with people. Patience helps me to develop experience. Or uh, the ability to have character is what the word really means. Character. It's, it's the, the pressure of life and the patience of life that produces good character. Isn't character something that our world's really looking for? Isn't it one of those things that you and I really need in our lives, but yet... Our world today is trying to find people with character. It's almost a lost trait in people's lives. The world is getting to the point where they will accept the lack of character. I was reminded just recently, uh, 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 I was involved in, a, in a, trying to, to bring uh, peace in them kind of a chaotic environment and there was a lot of hard feelings and harshness that was had developed as a result of this event and and I, I was trying to help them uh, to be uh, better people and and to take the higher road two wrongs never make a right no matter what somebody's done in life that doesn't justify me responding because they did something wrong if God judged me for my momentary mistakes, none of us would get to heaven. God didn't judge David by momentary failures. The Bible says he's a man after God's own heart. Why is he a man after God's own heart? Oh, he made lots of mistakes. He, he represented all humanity. He's just like you and I. But he didn't live in his mistakes. When someone pointed his mistakes out, he would repent and try to change his life or fix his life. God is not going to judge your life by momentary failures. He will judge your life by the distance between the failures instead of the failures. Three good days and a bad one. 
Three good days and a bad one. Three good days and a bad one is a pretty good life. 75% of the time, you're doing well. You know, can I get real nosy? We expect people to be absolutely perfect at all times. You understand that in the sport of baseball, if a man can bat 400, he's a hero and would make millions of dollars in a contract. There's none of them today that can even get close. There was only one man who did it in his lifetime. 400. He's a hero. Ted Williams, hero. Everybody knows his name. Everybody knows about him because of his accomplishment that an entire season of baseball, he batted 400. Do you know what 400 means? Ten times he got up to bat. Four times he got on base. Six times he's out. That's 40%. The world applauds 40%. We won't applaud 90%. I asked if I could meddle. We, we judge people by momentary failures instead of how much space are they putting between them. Are, are, are they starting to get their life together? Are, are, they, are, are they developing character as a result of the pressure? See, you can't have character unless you've been tried in the fire of life. It's easy to try to be somebody when there's no problems. I make the statement all the time that you've never loved anybody until they tick you off. That's true. See, love's not based upon how good they are. You don't love them because they love you back. You, you don't love them because of, of, of character or, or, or their behavior. You, you love them in spite of their character and their behavior. You can't have character without trouble. You, you can't develop a lie that, that should be the life you should live without a little bit of pressure. Every one of us needs a little bit of pressure. Do you understand it's pressure that gives us the ability to breathe? Anybody been to Denver for a long period of time or climbed a mountain and stood at the top of 12,000 feet? What's, what's it like to breathe there? It's real difficult, isn't it? Why? Well, there's not enough pressure. And the, the more to the sea level you get where the pressure is elevated and gets closer to the 14 PSI that, that's natural to our atmosphere, then breathing becomes easier. It, it's pressure that even allows our bodies to function carefully. It's pressure that lets blood flow. Your, your, your blood has two types of pressure. There's the top one and the bottom one. But uh, your body is never without some form of pressure. Even when the heart's at rest, there's pressure inside your blood vessels that, that, that's pushing the blood through your... You need pressure. We need to struggle. Struggle is good. We think you start living for God and all the problems go away, all the issues go away, and life is just a rose garden from now on. Everything ought to be perfect 
And nobody should be human. We get this view of, uh, of living for God that's a little twisted. That, that, that I, God saved me and now I can kick back in my, my easier lazy boy with a big gulp on the, the, the chair beside me. I'm just going to cruise on into heaven. Now you just had a target painted on your back. You think the devil is going to tolerate you just getting by in life without uh, manipulating the world around you to put a little pressure on you? Not going to happen. It's the pressure that develops patience. And it's patience that develops character. How elastic. It's character that develops hope. What is hope? Hope is faith that has been achieved and witnessed. Faith is, is for something that hasn't happened. Faith is anticipating, believing, and knowing that's possible, but you've never seen it. Hope has seen it, has experienced it, and hope knows how it operates. You see, at this point in my relationship with God, I don't have faith God's going to heal. I have hope because I've seen Him do it before. I know it's possible. I know He can. So I'm anticipating seeing the action take place. I'm not worried about is it going to happen. I'm just wanting to see it happen and watch it happen. That's hope. Pressure produces patience. Patience produces character. And character says, whoa, I don't have to live my life based upon how I feel. I don't come to church and live for God because I get a certain emotion or a certain feeling or, or, or I, I get to church and, and God moves in a certain way and I, I feel a certain thing. I'm living for God by feelings. I start living for God by what I know and what I've experienced. And if I don't feel nothing the rest of my life, I have felt enough at this point in my life to take me through the rest of my life. I am going to live by the hope that I have that He's coming back for His children. And I know He is because of other things that I know about Him. And I know He keeps His Word. And I know there's going to be a resurrection. And I know that, that His coming it will be determined by how much you and I want Him to come back. When His children start crying, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. That's when He's going to start returning when we are anticipating His return. I have met some people in my life that have impacted me incredibly. Two of them were under the age of 16. One was only nine years of age. The other was 16 when I met him. I met him at a camp in the northwest part of the United States. We were having camp meeting in a, a college gymnasium that had chairs set up. At night, I was sitting on the platform, and I, I, I saw him the first time as this little fellow comes into church. 
And he makes his way. I watched him come through the back doors. There's a large gymnasium. And I, I watch him make his way across the back. And, and then I, I watch him as he makes his way down the center aisle. And he comes all the way to the front. And he sits on the very front seat. Now, I noticed a lot of people looking and wondering. And I, it wasn't, it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what was going through their minds. It was obvious. They were wondering, what's he going to the front for showing up this late? Because church has started. We're in about the second song when he finally comes walking down the aisle and he made his way to the very front seat. I watched him as he sat there that night and, and he, he, he worshiped and participated. The problem was that that he, his hands weren't quite coordinated enough to get them together like everybody else. His gait wasn't coordinated enough to walk like other people. He stumbled and staggered and almost run as if he was falling at times, just moving from place to place. I watched this young man as he sat there. and I watched him try to worship, and he worshiped with everything that was in him. I kept watching him through the week. He caught my attention the first night. And I'd watch him. One day I saw him out on the campus. Other young people were playing basketball, and I watched him stagger from object to object because he didn't want to walk with his crutches that day and he made his way across the campus and stood and watched. I had the privilege of talking to him for a little while. He couldn't talk real well. He had no more control of his voice than he did his hands or his legs. And he Worshipped as much as he could with everything he had. Several people noticed I paid a lot of attention to him. I went out of my way to talk to him. I uh, tried to connect every way I could. And, and several of the ministers noticed that. One of them, one the last night of service said, uh, I noticed you have been connected to this young man, called him by name. And I've watched you as you've talked to him and interacted with him. And he said, "Um, do you know his story? And I said, no. See, I was convinced he had cerebral palsy because of his plasticity and his inability to coordinate himself. It, It was, he had the classic signs of cerebral palsy. And I thought that's what was the problem. So I, I said to the minister, it, it appears he has cerebral palsy. He said, no, sir, he doesn't have cerebral palsy. When his mother was in her sixth month of pregnancy, her husband come in drunk one night and took a broom and beat her until she was unconscious. And that beating is what produced his problems because he injured that child. 
And all that little fellow was trying to do was be normal. I never saw him complain. He had the most incredible outlook on life. You'd try to talk to him about his life and he'd just, he, he, he would smile at you and, and, and he didn't think that he had a bad life. He had an incredible view of what life was. And all he wanted to do was just be normal like everybody else. And then I noticed and heard several other young people complaining to moms and dads about things they didn't like. And he was just excited to be there and to be allowed to be part of it. It's real easy for us to have criticisms and, and, and to not have the character and the hope we should have as a result of what life does to us. But there, there, if we pay attention to life, life can speak to us if we'll listen. I have a little picture on my desk at home of a little fellow whose name is Edwin. And Edwin was born with spina bifida. His spine was open from his hips up between his shoulder blades. And instantly after birth, he had to have major surgery to cover, to, to close up the wounds of that exposed spine. By six years of age, he had had over 40 plus surgeries. And the doctor said he would never live past puberty because his body just wouldn't be able to tolerate it. One of his kidneys was a trophy didn't work, and the other one only worked at 40%. But when you would meet Edwin, he always had a smile on his face, and he would call to you no matter where you were in church. And the church was a little larger than this building, and if you walked out, it didn't matter if church had started or not. And he saw you. He'd call you by name. And the pastor, it didn't bother the pastor because they knew how incredible this young man was anyway. And he'd holler out and call your name and said, you need to come and give me a hug. You have ignored me today. I'd walk off the platform, walk way back where he was at, kneel down by his wheelchair. I would tell him, Edwin, you you hug me. I, I can't hug you because... I don't know how hard to hug, and I might hurt you, so you just hug me if that's okay. And he'd, I'd kneel beside him, and he'd hug me, and he'd say, Brother Hughes, I love you. He said, Edwin, I love you too. I got to talk to Edwin on an individual basis several times, and he had an incredible outlook on life. He started having episodes that were um, near-death experiences. His body would stop functioning and he'd quit breathing. Face would turn blue. They'd rush him to the hospital. After that first event, when he finally, his body kicked back in and started functioning again and his eyes opened up in the emergency room and the doctors were standing around. His mom and dad were there. and He started talking loudly and he said, Mom, Dad, did you see him? Mom and dad said, did I see who? Did you see him? 
Who are you talking about, Edwin? Did you see him? Edwin, we, who are you talking about? Jesus. He came into my room and he sat on this bed beside me. And he told me, I'm going to get to go live with him and be where he's at. I'm going to be with you for a little while longer, but in not very long, I'm going to go get to be with him. There were several times over the next two years where he heard angels singing. And he'd stop his mom and dad driving down the road. He'd say, pull over, mom, dad, pull over, pull over. Do you hear them? Do I hear who? The angels are singing. That's hope. See, that's the relationship God wants all of us to have. Life had a lot of pressure on Edwin and a lot of pressure on Anthony. And those two little young men had incredible obstacles to overcome in their life. But they didn't let their obstacles affect their outlook. And they learned patience. They learned how to respond in ways you and I have never learned how to respond They've learned patience. They taught me how to be patient. They have incredibly affected my life. I will never forget those encounters because tribulation produces patience. Patience produces character. Character produces hope. And hope maketh not ashamed. Hope will never embarrass you or cause you to blush. Hope will never leave you exposed so that you're terrified or embarrassed or shamed or humiliated. When you discover hope, you have discovered the most powerful resource that you could ever live life by. See, after watching God heal mom of cancer, it wasn't hard for me to believe that God could heal anybody. It wasn't hard after I watched him heal my son of a third-degree burn on his little fingers that were burned to the bone. And, 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 and doctors saying he'd have to have skin grafts. And it wasn't hard to believe God could heal him. So in that hospital when he says, Dad, would, would you pray for me? And I laid my hands on that little boy's body. And that three-year-old in emergency room started praying for him. And, and I'd feel that body quit trembling. My wife was speaking at a ladies' conference. I just had Jill and Anthony by myself. And that little body would tremble, and then I'd start praying, and it'd start relaxing, and he'd kind of drift off to sleep. Finally, come took us back. Doctors looked at it and said, it's third-degree burn, sir. He'll have to have skin grafts. So we leave and go get his medicine. On the way home, I, he fell asleep. We didn't have to have seat belts in, so I carried him with him on my shoulder. He slept all the way to the pharmacy. He slept through getting medicine and all the way home. About 2 o'clock in the morning, I put him in bed with me, put Jill in her bed, and I get awakened at 6 o'clock the next morning by a little fellow beside my bed shaking me, saying, Daddy, I'm hungry. Get up. Feed me. I come out of my stupor of, only been asleep for four hours, or and I, I, I foggily start remembering he's hurt. I said, Anthony, how's your hand? 
And he held it up and the bandage is gone. We never did find the bandage. I have no clue where we lost them. Somewhere from the hospital to the house, they disappeared. He wiggled that little hen. He said, oh, it's okay, Dad, look. And there was no scar or signs of burn because I don't have faith. I live by hope. I don't have to think about whether or not he's going to do it. I know what God's going to do. So once the pressure comes and the struggles come, which produces my, my patience and my patience produces character, it introduces me to hope that lets me know I can live my life based upon what I know. I don't have to feel nothing else in my life. I don't have to have another experience with God other than all of them I've had at this point. And that's sufficient to get me through the rest of my life. Because I am being justified. It's a journey. I haven't got there. You haven't got there. There's none of us tonight that have achieved what we're trying to achieve. So it's a continuous process from day to day to day to day. And if I can just make sure that my good days are more than my bad days. To Tartara, he says, to he that overcometh, I will give him a white stone, and in that white stone a new name. That white stone represented a good day. By the front door of every home was a huge urn. When dad come home in the evening, he put a white stone in if he had a good day and a black stone if he had a bad day. When he died, they broke the urn and counted the stones. And if he had more white than black, he had a good life. It only required 50% plus one. He promised the church, I will make sure that at the end of your life, when they start counting your life, I will guarantee you that there will be more white in your life than black. There will be more positive, more good days than bad days. So it doesn't matter what life has done. If I understand this is a process, it's not a point action or it's not a point experience. It's a journey I start living and I live every day being justified by faith. Please stand.